0: Great. So, it's good to be here this morning. Um, I just want to introduce myself. So, for those who do not know me, my name's um, Nathan. I'm married to Mandy, and um, we're expecting a baby very soon. Um, So, be praying for us. I was actually a bit um, tempted last night to pray that labor would come early, um, (laughs) because I was quite nervous for this morning, but that didn't happen. So, um, anyways... So if you're new this morning, I really want to welcome you and just extend uh, Paul's welcome. And um, if you, you're actually joining us this morning in a series that we're doing through Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so just before we jump into it, I want to quickly uh, just locate us in the story. Um, so we're going to be looking at the chapter 5 of Nehemiah this morning. Um, but just briefly, uh, we looked at chapter 1 and we saw... Nehemiah's his heart was filled with a, with a sense of like a holy discontent uh, that Paul was speaking about. Um, and we see that he was taken into this kind of holy discontent was a result of seeing the ruin um, that Jerusalem was in. And through prayer and the sovereign hand of God, um, the king at that time, King Artaxerxes, sends him out uh, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And it's important to remember that actually this king was a pagan king. He wasn't a God-fearing king, and yet God um, transforms his heart and, and calls him to do that. So then we looked at uh, chapter 2, and we see how God, in fact, starts to prepare the hearts of the people for this rebuilding work. And um, Nehemiah prepares them for that. And chapter 3, we see that the building work has begun, and there's different people groups and different families that are building different sections um, of the wall. Um, but we we saw last week that the work was not without opposition. Um, so Ollie just spoke so beautifully last week in just showing us some of the external opposition that they faced and the way that God called them to respond to it and to overcome it. So this morning we're looking at uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, just a section of it, and we'll see how there's a bit of a shift. I think when you start, you move into Nehemiah 5, you expect to see, okay, wow, the the, the wall's growing and things are happening. But in fact, what we see is that this external opposition changes to an internal one, and we find out quite quickly that the walls that they were building, um, these bricks and stone and mortar, don't really help them um, against this internal conflict. And we see that this uh, internal injustice that they face may perhaps be one of the hardest challenges um, that they face. So, before we dive into the text, um, some of my uh, a sermon this morning is entitled Confronting Injustice. So we're going to see how injustices were confronted in this text. But I want to briefly define for us justice. Um, so what is justice? Briefly put, justice is the way things ought to be. It is when reality matches God's plan and intentions for our community or group of relationships. Um, many of you, you will know Martin Luther King. Um, he defines justice as love creating Love correcting everything that revolts against love. Gideon Strauss, a Christian philosopher, uh, defines justice in the following way, when all God's creatures received what is, receive what is due to them and contribute out of their own uniqueness to our common existence. I really love just looking at that quote, just the second part, where, as he speaks about this uniqueness that each, of, each individual brings and that that uniqueness um, can come and contribute to our common existence. So, quite obviously, defining justice is more complex um, than what I've, I've brought to us this morning, but I really want to ask us that the, for, for the purpose of this talk, the purpose of this ta- of this talk um, that we'll kind of hone in a little bit on this brief definition. And for those of you who have been in Eugene for a while, you will know that we don't take justice lightly. Um, we spent quite a bit of time, even last year as we launched Surf Stellenbosch, we did a series through justice looking at um, what the Bible teaches about justice and how our hearts should be there. Even earlier this, in, in this year, we did a series just in our life groups, um, looking at a heart for social justice. Um, and these moments were crucial for us as a community in defining and helping us to understand what, what does justice mean and what does injustice look like and how do we, how does God call us to respond? So as we look back, uh, just in Nehemiah, what we will read in chapter five, um, now are in fact injustices. So we see that we're going to begin to see that there are things that ought not to be this way and things are broken. And we get a little glimpse at how um, God used Nehemiah to rectify them. Um, so firstly, a broad heading I have is it's, it's entitled The Great Outcry. So why don't you quickly go with me um, to Nehemiah uh, 5, verse 1 to 5. So I'm going to read quite quickly. Um, I hope you knew this morning that you were going to be a Nehemiah, so it shouldn't be such a challenge. Um, but it is up on the screen for us. So I'm just going to read from verse uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So it's quite clear to see in this passage that we find a series of injustices, and um, these injustices happened about 2,400 years ago, um, but yet... Upon reflection, it's quite clear to see that they speak volumes to the injustices that we say, that we um, see around us you know, in our very own communities and in our country. Um, you cannot help but see the oppression faced by the poor in South Africa depicted um, in the oppression faced by the poor in Israel. So if we look a bit deeper at verse one, firstly, we see this great outcry. Um, and it was interesting in just reading into this that the language used here for outcry is the same Um, word used in Exodus 2 verse 23, when the Israelites um, raise an outcry to God because of the oppression of the Egyptians. Um, And it's quite significant as well to note that this term outcry and the Hebrew term for this word outcry is the specific type type of outcry that God hears. So why such a great outcry? What is really happening here? Um, What are these people responding to? So we see that the level of this outcry is that that even reaches Nehemiah, it reaches the ear of the governor. So we see uh, families are made desperate by hunger, um, so they can't even afford the basic needs of, of food just for their families. And to get this, they're actually forced to take loans out um, from their brothers, and their brothers are exacting interest on their, on these loans, and this begins to just push them deeper into cycles of poverty. So there's a systemic um, issue where the rich are exploiting the poor. And I want us just to go back to verse 5 as we kind of get a glimpse of the extent of this justice. So we see that these poor families are having to sell their children into slavery. So even just to get food, they're having to sell their children into slavery. And remember, this is to their own brothers, to their own Jewish brothers. And in reading this, I couldn't imagine what that must be like. You know, imagine not having money for food, and, and the only way that you can repay the loans that you've taken out to get that is by sending your own children into slavery. And in desperation, these families cry out, our children are as good as those of the nobles, but we are powerless. Our fields and vineyards belong to others. And I was really humbled when I read that, because it was reminded me a, a lot of the outcry that we hear in South Africa, um, where poorer families are kind of wrapped into and trapped by cycles of poverty, and yet most of the time they must be thinking to themselves, why is this happening to us? You know, our sons and our children are just the same as the others, and yet we face this. So what outcries have we heard in our country, and what reaches our ears? I just want to suggest um, just a few for us. Firstly, there are systemic injustices. We know that um, the law of apartheid has been removed, but tragically, the relational, structural, um, political, and financial effects of it are, are still run deeply through our society. And there are daily insults to human dignity that, um, when I'm honest, myself as a white South African, am so often unaware of. Even just think about the Roads Must Fall movement. What about access to opportunity? Um, free and fair access to basic opportunities such as education, employment, and social integration. What about race and class relations? Um, racial, and racial frustrations in our country are rife, and this leads to a, great, to a greater anger and a great angst. What about not being welcomed into the country? Um, even in our own, own community, in One Hope, we experience this, where many foreign nationals, having fled their own countries, um, are not welcomed into South Africa, and oftentimes, are, in fact, um, experience uh, violent xenophobic attacks think about uh, corruption, or even um, what about the injustices that women face in the workplace um, where they they are too often undervalued and undermined. I think for me, one of the clearest parallels to this text um, is inequality and cycles of of poverty. South Africa is one of the most disparate nations um, in the world when it comes to the size of the gap between the rich and the poor. This is an injustice. This is not the way that things should be. And many of the the protests that we see in our country are birthed from this deep um, emotional response to these facts and to um, slow change, change that never seems to happen. I want to challenge us this morning. Can we see beneath um, the, let's take service delivery protests, the outcry, can we see beneath, can we see the heart? Oftentimes, um, we perhaps maybe don't like the expression, so we disregard it. And I really want to challenge us to look to the heart, to see the heart of fathers and mothers whose children have to travel great distances in very dangerous areas um, just to go to the bathroom. So we see here there's a systemic poverty um, which traps and enslaves many South Africans, which sadly, due to our history, are predominantly people of color. Can we see the clear parallel here between the text in Nehemiah and what's experienced by the poor in our country, where people are locked into cycles of poverty and have no way of getting them out? You hear the the families cry where they say we have we have no power of getting our children out, and for me that sounded very similar to perhaps some of the um, older people in in our in our country who cry out and say that they wish that their kids or their grandchildren could have got out of the township, but they see that that, that's not being able to happen. Can we as a church see the system which traps them, and are we happy perhaps to just live within it, or do we seek, in fact, to try and shift and change that culture? I want to ask us, do we hear? I think, sadly, when I evaluate my own hearts, I'm often deaf um, to these outcries. So there are so many facets of justice in our society, but I want to kind of spend a little bit more time digging deeper into this last facet. And that's the ever, ever-present ever inequality um, that we, we face in South Africa and its implications specifically on economic um, and spatial injustice. For me, spatial justice is something that's important to me. Um, I studied as an architect and now work as one. So it's, it's something that I always see quite clearly and it's very close to my heart. And um, I think if we think about holy discontent moments, this is something that God's really pushed in, in into my heart and grown over the years. Um, I just like a time that I can always always remember is just driving past Kailitsha, and every time I drive past there, no matter how often, it breaks my heart just to see the expanse of poverty in the township, um, and just the feeling that people can't get out of there. And it's for me, it's like, Father God, it should not be this way. Something has to change. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper here. Firstly, just to um, sketch for us a level of inequality that perhaps we haven't seen before. And secondly, to inspire and urge us um, to respond to the injustices that we, that we face in, in our specific fears. So I'm going to do this specifically through a visual um, essay. So this is going to look at glimpses of our country um, and looking at the vivid display of inequality that we find within them. So many of these images that we will see um, were taken by an anthropologist called Johnny Miller, and he created a very interesting work that I, would, I, I encourage you to go and look at. It's called Unequal Scenes. And commenting on this work, um, he writes, Looking straight down from a height of several hundred meters, incredible scenes of inequality emerge. Some communities have been expressly designed with separation in mind, and some have grown more or less organically. During apartheid, segregation of urban spaces was instituted as policy. Roads, rivers, buffer zones of empty land and other barriers were constructed and modified to keep people separate. Twenty-two years after the end of apartheid, many of these barriers and the inequalities that they have engendered still exist. Oftentimes, communities of extreme wealth and privilege will exist just meters from squalid conditions and shack dwellings. By providing a new perspective on an old problem, I hope to, I hope to provoke a dialogue which can begin to address the issues of inequality and disenfranchisement in a constructive and peaceful way. So the following are a few um, aerial glimpses just of the state of inequality in our country and um, for the purposes of this morning, I'm not going to comment much on them, um, but really kind of let the, the images speak to us to open our eyes and show us an in- a level of inequality that we may never have seen before. So first, um, this is Durban, South Africa. Next, we see um, Imi This is a, a township in Heart Bay. This is in our own city in Cape Town. This is again another um, image just of Imez Amoyetu. And for me, um, just in studying my undergrad, we uh, did a project that was connected to one of the taxi hubs in Imez Amoyetu. And this is uh, a moment where I really felt God growing that holy discontent in me as I was exposed to a state of life that people were forced to live. Um, that was deeply moving and deeply eye-opening for me. And it was reinstated by my master's. Um, my master's was situated in Guguletu in Cape Town with a specific focus, focus on memory and understanding people's memory in our country. Um, and the insights and experiences that I gained in these uh, moments and the stories that people would tell me is, is something that I will never forget. Um, and they urged me, as God's Spirit leads me, to use my career as an architect in the future, to be an architect of change um, that looks to break these spatial and economic constructs and seeks to s- looks to seek unity. Next, this is um, Nomzamo in Somerset West Strand, and you can notice quite clearly this buffer zone um, between the two areas that Miller was talking about. And lastly, this is Stellenbosch. Um, we see... Kaimundi here in the front, Um, so we see people that are forced um, to live in a a really small space, and yet they kind of overlook some of the most um, expensive land in the country. This is an issue by the Time magazine, um, and I was shocked when I saw the date. It was issued, uh, published in May this year, Um, and in this in this issue they featured a lot of Miller's work um, and. It was found by the World Bank that South Africa is the most unequal country in the world. So for me, spatial justice being something that's very important, what if we took that a step further? Um, I was just reminded in thinking about this, what if we think of public spaces in South Africa? Do we feel like public spaces in South Africa are racially or economically neutral? Do we think that people from different um, ethnic or economic backgrounds feel equally comfortable in our public spaces. What if we think about the ever-increasing privatization of public space? I was just reminded in thinking about what, what about the neighborhood that used to be the neighborhood um, and the public parks and the public streets that, any, that was free for anyone to move in, but this is um, too often becoming replaced with uh, the gated community or the complex. And what happens there is then the public street and the public path becomes privatized, and those spaces are only, the people who are only welcome in those spaces are the residents or the visitors to those areas. So I just want to ask us, do we feel like those types of things help push and pursue inequality in our country or perhaps begin to kind of subtly reinstate segregation? And I mentioned this, I'm not specifically pointing um, only at those kind of spatial injustices, but for me, this is something very close to my heart. So I hope that as you hear me, you can begin to translate these ideas into your own sphere um, and where you work and where you live. So I merely mention these to probe our thoughts and broaden our vision. Do we understand the implications um, that our lives have, even with where we choose to live and who we choose to surround ourselves with? So we can go on and on with these outcries, and um, I think when I'm honest, I can often feel quite immobilized just by the expanse and the the complexity and the size of the issue um, that we face in South Africa. But I think, and when we look at the text, I think Nehemiah quite easily could have done that. As governor, he kind of could have just um, shut his door and, and left them um, to their own peril, but we are so glad that he didn't do that because... As he chose to respond, his willingness to listen to the voices of the people opened up a beautiful opportunity for God to work in and through him. So before we go further, I just want to take a moment um, to acknowledge that many of the issues of justice when we're looking at South Africa are linked to or rooted in race um, because of our history. And for the purpose of this talk, I want to focus more generally on justice, of which racial um, justice or racial injustice, is probably the most important part. Um, but I want to look this morning rather at justice as part of a Christ follower's life, um, no matter what their ethnicity. So the history of our country has led us to be so divided, and in a way so alien to one another, that we really struggle to see pains um, in the other, or in the other groups of people. And we become immune, in a way, to their outcries. We somehow sympathize with people that are similar to us, who like us, or who are like us, and we tend to prioritize their outcries over others. If we go back uh, to verse 5, I just want to allow this to speak to us. In verse 5, it says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to to be slaves. Can you hear that cry in people of South Africa? I mean, people whose children are forced into cycles of poverty, and yet they're seeing that their children are no different to anyone else, and yet they, they face a significant, significantly more oppression. When I try to put myself in the shoes of these people, I think that my outcry would be very similar. Can I challenge us today to listen to the voices, to listen and to be willing to hear the outcries? And the, and the hearts of people who may perhaps be protesting in a way that we dislike. Can I ask you to hear the real outcry that when you see a, a violent um, service of protest that you can hear the father and mother's hearts who wish that there would be a day that their kids wouldn't have to travel in these dangerous areas just to go to the bathroom? Or the frustration of the older generation who look down at their children and their grandchildren and wish that one day they could get out of the township, and it feels like they're never going to be able to do so. What about the outcry of 90% of domestic workers who earn less than they can meaningfully live off? All of this invokes in us an emotional response, and these kind of things stir inside of us. So I want to take us quickly back to the text, and we can look at how Nehemiah responded to the outcries that he heard. So it's the right response. Let's go from chapter, chapter 5, verse 6 to 11. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses. And the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So we can see quite clearly from the text that there are two, Nehemiah responds in two key ways. There are two key responses. Firstly, we see that he responds with anger, and I would like to argue that this was uh, a moment of righteous anger as he responded to the injustice, a moment where Nehemiah saw this injustice that his people was facing. He knew the heart of God, and that stirred his emotions. It's quite significant in thinking about this that the, this word anger has never been used in the book of Nehemiah before. Um, even though Nehemiah faced kind of being slated by other leaders, his nation faced uh, a serious amount of external opposition. He never responded in this. But this injustice that he, that he sees provokes that response. But it's important to see that it didn't stop here. He didn't respond in this kind of anger and just um, sit there. But what he did is he took, the ESV says that he took counsel with himself, that he took, he took time to ponder So Nehemiah didn't lash out in this feeling of anger, but he took time to ponder what was the right right response. What would God want him to do here? So what could this pondering have looked like? Um, I think firstly, I would like to argue that it included prayer. We have seen quite clearly from Nehemiah's life um, that he had a a very um, lively prayer life, and he was very close to God in prayer. Secondly, perhaps he reflected on the heart of God, looked at what, what would God want him to do here? What is God's view on this injustice that the people are facing? Thirdly, honest personal reflection. Um, perhaps he evaluated his own heart. Had he, had he played a part in this injustice? And lastly, wise, courageous preparation. We'll see as he responds that he drew much courage from this pondering. So out of this moment, Nehemiah responds, and his response features two main charges. And these two main charges were against the guilty parties. So the first one is that the wealthy were exacting interest on loans to their poor brothers. And secondly, um, he charges them that the wealthy were selling their poor brothers into slavery. And it's interesting in reading this because I think in our modern thinking, We may think this is quite odd, you know? Like, Nehemiah, why are you equating interest, like a little bit of interest on a loan, to slavery? Like, how does that make sense? But clearly we're missing something here because Nehemiah's response was grounding in the teachings of Moses the law and the heart of God that is depicted there. Remember the law of the Lord and obedience which was supposed to characterize the restored people of Jerusalem. So we see here that Nehemiah's view of justice was not defined by social or societal norms, as ours ours too often are, but actually that they were were defined by the Word of God. We see a glimpse of this, this foundation for his understanding of justice in Leviticus 25, verse 35 to 43. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him, as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You will not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. It's quite clear as we read these two texts next to each other that there's a clear opposition in the description between the two. And this is, this is a glimpse of what justice looks like, and we see that uh, in Nehemiah 5, the Israelites are living in a way that is completely opposite to this. It's crucial to see that the root of their actions is that they didn't really know God. The text quite clearly identifies that they didn't really fear God as they were clearly called to. So we see here that their flawed view of God resulted in a flawed behavior towards one another. Let's look back at Nehemiah 5 verse 9. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemy? So you see that this is the part that Nehemiah goes after. They do not fear God. That's their problem. The people do not truly fear God. They have no awe of his sovereignty, no respect of his power, no grasp of his heart, will, and the good works that he works for his people. There is no basis for them to truly love one another. As Christians, how we treat others is always determined by what we think about God. I want to just quickly identify, identify for us two great foundations. Two great foundations for our understanding and our outworking of issues of justice. Firstly, um, we have the imago Deo, this idea of that all of humanity is created in the image of God. And secondly, we have the moral law. How is God instructed for us to live and treat one another. So broadly or philosophically speaking, um, at a philosophical level, our view of justice, um, in this case societal or social, needs to be driven by an understanding that all of humankind is made in the image of God. And because of this, we find that they have an inherent value, and that all of humanity is then worthy of infinite dignity. But then we have to ask ourselves, how is this manifested? How do we live this out? And for this, we go um, to the second tablet of the law, which is the last six commandments. Um, and we look at how has God actually instructed us to live out this life? We see that Paul does this in Romans 13, where he's speaking about love. He reiterates um, these commandments in that way. So what we need to do is to search the Scriptures and to find out how God intended for his people to live, love, and treat one another. So as Christians, we have both. We have the overarching idea that people have an errant value as they are made in the image of God. Yet we, put, we have to put feet on this idea and figure out how we live this out. And we talk specifically about what would be right or wrong in a certain situation. We see that issues of justice are always connected to issues of worship. So in this text, we see how Nehemiah's right response comes from a right understanding of God's heart and his will. It is clear to see that doctrine matters in deeds of mercy. A right understanding of God results in a right response to injustice. So issues of justice are not socially or politically driven. They are faith-driven. If we respond as God would have us to the injustices that we hear in South Africa, we cannot afford to bypass these important steps. Um, As we think this morning, we might not be a Nehemiah, and in in fact this text is not calling us to be a Nehemiah. Um, We don't have his influence, we don't have his position as governor, but that does not mean that God intends for us to respond to the injustices that we hear in our lives and our specific fears. So I want to encourage us to allow us to hear the, out, hear the outcries that, that we hear to move us towards a state of pondering before God what a right response will be, and then to pursue justice in those areas with love and grace as we are founded in God's truth. So what can we learn from Nehemiah's response? I think, firstly, as I've said now, that we, we should have a right understanding for God's heart, and the way that that right understanding will then filter into our view and our perspective on the injustices that we face. This will stir our hearts and cause us to pursue justice. Secondly, we should ponder a right response. What does justice look like in the situation and how do we get there? Thirdly, we should then act to stand up, speak up against the injustice and bring guidance as to how to bring justice in that situation. So there are many ways that we can do this and some of them um, as I'll share now, may in fact be closer to home than we think. To illustrate this, I want to tell you a quick story about um, Nigel Branken. So one day, Nigel's domestic worker um, came to him and asked him if, if she could have a day off because she needed to take her child to the dentist. So Nigel agreed and said that he would go with her. But upon the evaluation, uh, the dentist realized that this child's teeth were rotten. So he proceeded to ask her, "Why, why hasn't your child been brushing her teeth?" She responded that she had, in fact, no money to buy a toothpaste or a toothbrush for her child. And this came as a serious shock to Nigel, as he realised that he, in fact, was he was responsible for paying her. So deeply moved, he went home and searched the scriptures on, on God's perspective for this. And one passage which stood out to him was Isaiah 58. Some of the context is found in verse 3, which says, You live with pleasures while you exploit your workers. The text text goes on to highlight a few areas. Um, One of them is food, shelter, clothing, and basic needs. And Nigel, in reading this, suddenly realized that unless he paid, he was providing adequately for her in these areas, he was in fact exploiting his worker. This opened Nigel's eyes to the idea of living wage over minimum wage. And as his perspective was shifted um, through God's word, he chose to then begin to pay her a living wage. So I really want to encourage us this morning in the different spheres that we find ourselves in, in work and where we live, to open our ears to the outcries of our nation. I was reminded even of the, of the word saoborna, which we often think is, is merely to say hello. But in fact, it means to say, I see you. And I found this really beautiful in thinking about that as we can live out that idea of borna and truly seeing one another, hearing one another, and responding to each other. Lastly, I want to look at grace, not justice. So why not you go with me to verse 14 to 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 30th, to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, the king. Twelve years neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. Nor my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was an ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember me for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people." So we see quite clearly here that Nehemiah, in fact, didn't pursue what was just in that situation. He actually pursued what was gracious. While it would have been just for him to have received this fruit allowance, he chose to take it out of his own allowance, and not only for himself but for some 150 other men. So Nehemiah took justice a step further. He looked past what was just and looked to what was gracious. I was reminded in reading this uh, this. Reading about this, a hymn written by a man called Nsikana. and some of you may have heard me uh, mention it before. But this was written during a period where hostility between the Khoisan and the Afrikaners um, was probably at its highest. And Nsikana wrote this hymn to the God who rules um, the heavens and who rules the heavens. So I just want to invite Lunga. He's going to read this for us quickly. Beautiful. So just to read that quickly for you in English, um, the hymn goes as follows. He is the one who brings together herds which oppose each other. He is the leader who has led us. He is the great blanket which we put on. So we see in a time of oppression and hostility and hatred between two different people, Nsikana wrote a song about a God who could bring racial reconciliation and who would care deeply and intimately for his people. Nsikana showed mercy and he sought God's grace to fall upon the people and to draw them together. In thinking about this text in Nehemiah and Nehemiah's response, I found this to be such a beautiful and stunning glimpse of the gospel. As Jesus is the greater Nehemiah, we thank you, King, that you, that Jesus didn't choose justice, but for us, he chose grace. And we thank God that he chose to get justice by, by sending um, Christ, by showing us grace. So I want us to go quickly to 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. It reads, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this tiny little verse, we see that God the Father made Christ to be regarded and treated as sin, even though he himself never sinned. We see that God did this for our sake. So God regarded and treated as if our sin belonged not to us, but to Christ himself. And in this way, we see how Christ became our substitute. He took our sin upon himself and bore the wrath of God in our place. This is taken further in the second part, um, where it reads, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see here that just as uh, God placed our sin on Christ in the same breath, He placed Christ's righteousness on us. This is the gospel that for for our sake, God sought grace at the cost of his Son. The gospel in Christ and through the power of the Spirit unleashes in the world a commitment not to live for justice, but to live for more than justice. Justice is minimalist in this sense. A life devoted to merely justice is in fact not the Christian life. God in the gospel treated us better than we deserve. That is not justice. We don't get justice in the gospel. God got justice in the gospel as he showed us grace. So in this way, God unleashes on the world a people who treat others way beyond justice. We shouldn't focus our lives wondering what is just in a certain situation, but we should be rather seeking grace. How can we instead love one another? How can we instead love our enemies even and go the extra mile? The gospel unleashes way beyond justice. Christians shouldn't be known as the justice people. We should start there and go way beyond. Christ will be known in the culture when we treat people better than they deserve, not as they deserve. Just as Christ chose to be treated as we deserved so that we could be treated as only he deserved. Can I pray for us quickly? Father God, you know our context, our situation. You know our country and the complexity of inequality and injustice that we face. We pray, King, that even in this morning, in a small way, you would have opened our eyes, broadened our vision, to see the outcry in our nation. We pray that you would give us wisdom, courage, and fill us with your spirit as we seek to respond to those injustices. We pray for your church, Lord God. If, if your church, your people who carry the gospel can't get this right, who will? We ask, King, that you would shower your love. And we, we, we pray together with, with Intikana, Lord God, that you would come and show your grace. That you would come and bring, you would be the great shepherd that would bring um, people together. We thank you, Father, and we do this in your name, King. Amen.